0: Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in on our sermon series through the Book of Romans. Throughout history, this has been regarded as the greatest letter ever written. It has been used by God to change people's lives for centuries, and we have prayed that God would use it to change your life as well. In a world full of bad news, Romans is about good news, and we hope God uses this sermon to help you believe and enjoy the good news of the gospel. Thanks for listening.
1: The scripture for today is Romans 4, 1 through 25. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification.
0: Amen. Good to see you this morning. My name is Jason Hatch. I'm the lead and the teaching pastor here at Redeemer. And just wanted to issue a, a hearty welcome. So glad that you're joining us and thankful for those of you who are joining online. We're excited to have all of you. If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 4 we have been uh, in a series in Romans which is ultimately about Jesus. And so for the last many weeks, we've been looking at this book of Romans, looking at Jesus. We paused last week to look at Easter, which is about... Jesus, and we're picking up in Romans chapter 4, which is about faith in Jesus. And I'll say this, uh, we are going to cover a big chunk today. We're going to cover the entire chapter 4. I know sometimes we break it up and we take little portions, but this chapter 4 is much like a sleeve of Pringles. It was meant to be consumed all at once. We're not quitters, amen? It's one big story. It's about faith in Jesus Christ, and really not just faith generically, not even just faith in Jesus, but a personal faith, uh, you one-on-one, a personal faith that actually what Jesus was doing with his life, with his death, with his burial and resurrection was a personal thing to be personally responded to by personal faith in a personal Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, We all have a tendency to put our faith in something. It's inevitable if you're human to put your faith in something. Normally how it plays out is we have kind of a functional idea of heaven or a preferred future, a preferred reality that we like, and so we try to figure out what that is, and if we're in a bad situation, then that's somewhat like a functional hell, and we try to think, well, who or what can get me to my preferred health, my preferred bank account, my preferred status, my preferred internal state, and so we'll pick something and really treat it oftentimes as a functional savior and put our hope in it to deliver us into that functional heaven, and then we don't realize that we have done that until that thing fails, until that thing falls. Alters until that thing dies. And uh, we call that 2020. A lot of functional saviors died. If you put your hope in the economy, you realize that's probably not a place for your ultimate hope. Maybe your, your, your hope was in uh, never becoming sick, never getting a virus. Maybe you've shifted that hope to the CDC and realized maybe that's a faulty place to put your hope. Maybe you put your hope in some politicians. Probably not, but if you did, that is not going well. We put our hope in certain things and don't realize that until they begin to fall apart. And there is a good way that God uses situations like that to remind us that it's better to put your hope in a, in a person that cannot die rather than something that can. So that's what we celebrated last week at Easter, that Jesus rose from the dead. He is the best place to put your ultimate Hope, better than the government, better than the price of oil, better than a vaccine because we're still going to die anyway someday. Jesus has invited us to put our hope in him and he rose from the dead to prove that he is a faithful place for us to put our hope. Uh, In the book of Romans the Apostle Paul is really presenting somewhat like a lawyer would uh, the case for the gospel. Uh, really the, the package deal about the good news of who Jesus is, what he has done, what he wants to do in your life, and what he will do in the future. And he's thinking about all the different angle, angles, much like a, a lawyer, and attorney would, and he is trying to head off at the past questions or hesitations that people might have. He's answering uh, presupposed questions from Jews and Gentiles, and he is presenting really the most holistic case for the mission and the man of Jesus Christ. And when we get to um, uh, chapter 4, he's going to invite in some help from the Old Testament. So he's already established as a good lawyer, presenting a case for the gospel that God is holy, which means he's, he's otherworldly, he's not like us, he's, a different, he's in a different category, he's righteous, and he's just, meaning sin. From, uh, if, if you're sinning against a holy God, then that holy God, by virtue of being good, must punish sin. It's much like when we understand some sin to have happened, uh, maybe somebody sinned against a child, hurt or harmed a child, something inside of you, if you are a good person, gets really angry because that should not have happened, and you want justice. If somebody is unrightfully murdered, something inside of you, because we bear the image of God, realizes that sin, if you're good, must go unpunished. And everybody's all excited about that until the Bible begins to say that we, in fact, are sinners. And then people decide, well, I don't think God can be angry at sin. But... This is what Paul has established thus far in Romans. God is holy and he's just and he has deserved wrath for sinners. And then Paul establishes that... That's all of us. That We're sinful, we're broken, we're under the wrath of God and so there's this looming question, this need that we need to be justified or to be reconciled or to be made right with God. There's only two ways that this can happen. God is holy and just, we're sinners. There's only two paths to become justified or to become right with God which if you don't know this, many of you do know this, this is the most looming need that you have as a human being, is to be justified with God. Whether you feel that or not, it is ultimately true that the most important thing about you is that you are are, are in a right relationship with God that has implications for this life, and obviously that has implications for eternity. So two options for justification. Justification by works and justification by faith, justification by our works, which is man's attempts in every religion, and honestly, many uh, by default, many West Texans believe in, though they wouldn't recognize it, justification by works, meaning, yeah, there's something broken, I need to work harder, I need to fix the problem, I need to start obeying, I need to stop sinning, I need to start going, I need to start giving, I need to work my way up and be a better person so that I can be justified before God. If I ask the question, are you a Christian? You say, yes. I say, why? If it begins with anything other than Jesus, that is justification by works. And Paul has just aggressively dismantled this idea that a broken, sinful human, if the problem is inside of us, can fix the problem ourselves. He just dismantles the idea that every other world religion teaches And that really by default, many just very moral West Texans believe that we can be okay in and of our own works. That um, Galatians 2.21, which is another letter from the Apostle Paul. He goes so far as to say, if you can be justified by your works and what you do, then Jesus Christ died in vain. If option one justification by works was actually an option, then that whole crucifixion thing was unnecessary. And so Paul's saying it was necessary because option one is a dead-end road that we cannot fix ourselves. The problem is inside, and so the answer must come from the outside. So he has dismantled the idea that we can be justified by works. And then he begins to expound a little more deeply on this reality that we need to be justified by faith. And not just faith, not just believing something, and honestly, not just faith historically in Jesus, but faith personally in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done that's very different than works works is about what we have done faith in Jesus is about what he has done and so just like a, a lawyer would do in a case, uh, that maybe they would call some expert witnesses and bring them up if those witnesses had certain credibility inside the court of law, uh, the apostle Paul is going to call upon two witnesses, which are really two of the, the biggest heroes of the Old Testament, Abraham and David. And he's going to call upon them to say, listen, even the heroes of the Old Testament believe that you can only be justified before God, not by works but by faith. So let's start with Father Abraham because he had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I just wanted to see how many of you grew up in Sunday school with flannel and such. Uh, if you are new to the Bible, which I know many of you are, I'll catch you up to speed on who Abraham is. Uh, maybe you have heard about him, maybe you have not. He is called the father of the faith uh, to us Christians, and he is also the, the one that really gave birth to the nation of Israel and what uh, was in the Old Testament was known as Judaism, uh, a massive, massive, massively important figure in world history and especially in, in the Bible and in Christianity. So so let me catch up to speed on who Abraham is, and then we'll drop into uh, Romans chapter 4. So in Genesis 1 and 2, this is page 1 of your Bibles, if it doesn't start counting on the index. Page 1, God creates Adam and Eve in his own image, puts them in a garden to enjoy relationship with him, relationship with each other, and, 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 and meaningful work that was unaffected by sin. And he basically says, don't mess it up. And if you turn your Bible to page 2, What happens? They mess it up they messed it up. And it's not just that they made a small mistake, it's that Adam and Eve rebelled against the authority of God, said we don't want your authority, we'll be our own authority, we don't like your laws, we'll make our own laws. And they rebelled and thrust off the rightful rule and reign of God in their lives and ruined everything. And that, has, that is the curse that has affected not just all of humanity and not just everything in your life, but everything in the cosmos and the world that we know. And then the next page, Genesis chapter 3, is what we call the Proto-Evangelium, which means the very first gospel, the very first time the good news of Jesus shows up in the Bible. It's so soon. It's spoken to the very first two human beings that there were. God says this, your seed, and he's talking to Adam and Eve, and this word seed in the original language means a singular masculine person. That Jesus' promise after all hell broke loose in Genesis 3 was your seed or this one singular male that will come out of the, the lineage of Adam and Eve will crush Satan's head and he will bruise his heel. This is the first time that this gospel of being, things being made right from somebody else that intervenes is preached And then you've got a few chapters of things not going real well, uh, went so badly that God looked down and said that he was grieved that he made man because there was so much selfishness and greed and murder and and sexual sin and so much that he covered the the world with a flood and starts over with Noah and then it begins to uh, ripple, the effects of sin continue until you get to chapter 12 of Genesis. And in chapter 12, you are introduced to a man named Abram. And in the early portions of your Bible in Genesis, his name is Abram, uh, until God changes his story, changes his trajectory, changes his name to Abraham. And when we're introduced to Abram, he's minding his own business. He has a wife, and he is an old man, probably in the neighborhood of 70 years old. And God, for some reason, chooses this man named Abram, as a sign of his affection, decides that he's going to do something special. He's going to fulfill the proto-evangelion or the first promise of the gospel through the the line and the future lineage of this man named Abram. So here's the promise from Genesis 12. God makes a promise and he says this, I will make you a great nation. And at that point, I'm sure 70-year-old Abram thinks, huh, this should be interesting he was not probably looking forward to a house full of toddlers as a 70-year-old man, and yet God makes a promise. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. True or false, God delivered on that promise. True or false, Abraham has been given a great name. We are talking about Abram 4,000 years later, half a world away. Most people on the planet have heard of him. Why? Why? Because God made a promise. He says, I'm going to make your name great. He says, I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a foreshadowing or a promise of Jesus Christ who's going to come through the eventual tribe of Israel that's going to be birthed from Abraham, the the Jewish nation, And this is the promise. God says, through you, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bring the Messiah into the human race through your family, through your nation, and all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And if you look forward, you find out that, in fact, God is keeping his promises. He did make him a great nation. He made Jesus to become one of him. He was born as a Jew and Jesus Christ has been a blessing to every nation and I don't have time to tease it all out this morning but when even in Genesis e- even in Genesis when this promise is given that a, a, a promised man through the Jewish nation will bless every nation that word is ethnos. And ethnos doesn't mean geopolitical nation like we think of with borders on maps. It's a people group. And so this pretty bold and profound promise that God's going to bless every small people group on the planet in sub-Saharan Africa, in the jungles of, uh, of, 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 of Middle Asia, in the, in the South Pacific, every small little piece on the planet is going to be blessed by this one man. And then 25 years passed. How many of you math majors, how old is Abraham? Old. 25 years have passed since God showed up and said, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And nothing happened for 25 years. And I'm sure Abraham was tempted to think, huh, I wonder if God forgot me. I wonder if he's still going to keep his promise. Genesis chapter 15 says this. It's on the screen here for you. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. Talking about a nephew, or really a a child that was born uh, to a, a mistress that he had. We'll get into that later. The Old Testament's fairly colorful if you have not been around it much. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. So he's nervous. He's like, "I know you said great nations, so you must be talking about this other kid because you're not really doing what you said you would do." And then God speaks up again. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look, how many of you have been outside in the country or in the mountains where there are no lights and you're overwhelmed at the sight of the sky and the numbers of the stars? There was no electricity. There were no lights. He brings Abram out in the middle of the desert uh, at night and says, look up, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here's or Abraham at this point's response. 95 year old man had been promised a nation that would equal the numbers of stars in the sky. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham puts his faith in God. And God puts righteousness, basically, in the account of Abraham. He credited that faith as righteousness in Abraham's account. Uh, I grew up in Amarillo, uh, not really from a a wealthy family. I ended up putting myself through college. And uh, went to Amarillo College, was just a ferocious fighting badger for three semesters. And uh, worked about three different jobs, putting myself through community college, which was fairly cheap. So I just... You can tell I just didn't make that much money. And then God called me into ministry, a pretty crazy story, but almost audibly uh, changed my direction, changed my life, asked me to be a pastor. I said, yes, sir. Transferred to Dallas Baptist University, which is a fairly expensive school, and I wasn't sure how that was going to work out until uh, I got a few scholarships. I had applied for every scholarship that was out there, both external and inside the university, and I was awarded a scholarship, and no lie, God provides, Jehovah Jireh, God provides. He provided enough one semester That I I had a surplus, uh, which is a rare thing at a private institution. Amen? And the 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 surplus that I had in my account, or or, uh, that I was supposed to have based on these scholarships, uh, could only be used in the school bookstore. And so I remember I was just I was so excited. I knew I'd got this scholarship for a certain amount, and so I had already paid for my classes for that semester and even the books that were necessary. So I show up in the DBU bookstore and I grab a hoodie. And I grab two coffee mugs, and I get like a headband and a beanie. And I'm just like, i got to use this surplus somewhere. And I'm so proud, and I march myself up to the counter, and I lay it all on there. I'm like, use my account. And they say, your account is empty, sir. I said, Fine. And I picked up my stuff, because I'm not a crazy person, went and restocked it on the shelves myself. I'm a decent human being. And then I went back to financial aid. I said, "Uh, something went wrong. We got all the kinks worked out. And then they said, oh, now it's applied to your account. So I go marching back in the bookstore, get all the same stuff. My hoodie's still there. My hat's still there. Mugs are still there. Put it on the counter. And they say, I don't know what happened, but there's a lot of money now in your account. I said, that's right. Grab a candy bar, throw it on top just for good measure. They didn't care where the money came from. All they know is that somebody had put the money in my account, right? This is exactly, he's not talking about like candy bars in college, but this is exactly the terminology, the accounting terminology that the Bible is talking about. It's like Abraham showed up. He needed to be justified. He didn't have any righteousness or good works in his own account, but it says he believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith in God, and don't miss this, Abraham's faith... In Jesus, Abraham's personal faith in this, this promise from Genesis 3, this promise that he didn't know his name was Jesus, but he had faith that God was going to do something, and he took God at his word. He believed God's promises, and that faith, when Abraham put his faith in God, God filled up his account with righteousness. How was Abraham seen right before God? Was it works or faith? that's what we that really kind of gets us to the beginning here uh, uh, before we jump back jump into romans 4 this is all introduction by the way <laughs> Uh, When I get to the introduction, you'll know because we will be praying and we will be out of here. Uh, Genesis 17, uh, two chapters later, after this promise is given, Abraham believes it. He's credited as being righteous, as being right standing with God, not because of works, but because of faith. Then Genesis 17, God gives him the sign or the seal of the covenant, which is circumcision. And then after circumcision, you find the rest of this, uh, this, this book of Genesis has to do with God fulfilling this promise. Abraham does have a miracle son. He's an old man. He has an old wife. And they have a miracle son. They name him Isaac. Isaac has a son. They name him Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Those eventually would become the 12 different tribes of Israel as each of those sons would have large families. One of those tribes was named Judah after my son, or actually my son was after him rather Judah and from the line of Judah you can trace this, this is not mythology this is human history, comes a man named David who would be the king over God's people that Abraham had birthed his son would be a Solomon they would continue to have kids and then a guy would show up in that lineage named Joseph he would be betrothed to a lady named Mary they would have a son named Jesus and Jesus would fulfill what had been prophesied 2,000 years before that God is going to send through the seed of the woman somebody to crush Satan's head and he's going to deal with the problem that like that's what's playing out in genesis it's not just a, a chronology of people it's god fulfilling his promises so now if you are in romans chapter 4 verse 1 say about time here we go what then shall we say was gained by abraham our forefather according to the flesh this is This is uh, Paul speaking as a Jewish person saying he was our forefather according to the flesh. As fleshly speaking, he he, he birthed our, our nation, our people group. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? We just read it. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was a hero of the faith, not because he was a good man, but because he had faith in God. And if you know the story, Abraham on some days was not a good man. You have to be careful about some of these Old Testament people when you start especially teaching your kids, like, I just want you to be like Abraham. And if they start getting in and reading some things that Abraham did... Like, I just I want you to be like David. And you get in there, it's like, well, not all of the things David did. I mean, Abraham, he, he was doubting God's promises, and so he basically, him and his wife, uh, can I have this crazy plan for him to go find a mistress and have a baby with her to try to perpetuate this promise that God had made. And then later on, he uh, basically gives his wife away to a king. Like, he did some very, very non-Christian, non-good things. So he wasn't right because of works. That's the, the point that Paul is driving home. He was not justified by works, but his faith. Verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. That was his work. That was was the main work that Abraham did, is that he believed God, and it was counted, or, or righteousness was put into his account. It was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. This means when you have payday, what they give you is not grace, it's not a gift, it belongs to you because you earned it. This is saying that the gospel is not something that is earned, that wouldn't produce thanksgiving and worship the gospel and right standing with God is something that is given. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. This is Paul saying, you can only be justified by faith in Jesus. Let's call in Abraham. Abraham agrees. Abraham believes that you can't work your way to heaven, that God works his way to you, that you're justified by faith. And then he's going to call in verse 6, he's going to call David out of the uh, Old Testament to speak. And he says this, verse 6. Just as David, who would have been probably an equal hero for the Jewish people as Abraham. He was a king, he was a poet, he was a warrior. Uh, they, they loved David. And he's saying, like, even David, who was seen as a man after God's own heart, did not believe that he was justified by his good deeds and what he did. He believed he was justified by the sheer forgiveness and mercy of God says this, just as David also speaks of the blessings of one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, he's quoting David, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David was not godly because he was a good man. He was godly because he trusted the promises of God. He was justified by faith. Again, this is Paul pulling out two heroes from the Old Testament saying both of them believe that being justified or made right by God through your works is a dead end. You must be justified by faith. This answers, I I, I believe, a very common problem that many people have. A lot of people believe that the New Testament is about faith. And grace in the Old Testament is about works and trying to do good. This is Paul saying the entire story of humanity is about grace and faith. How were people saved in the Old Testament? By faith. Beginning with Adam and Eve, they believed the promises of God, extending to Abraham, extending to David, extending all through those who responded in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, people were saved and justified based on their faith that Jesus, the Messiah, was coming. New Testament, how are we saved? By faith, by faith that he did come and by faith that he is going to come again. And then we talk about this sign of the covenant uh, that was given to Abraham. And Paul's going to go out of his way to say this was a sign of the covenant. It did not in any way contribute to his right standing with God. Verse 9 says this, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Everybody say circumcised. I'm just kidding. <laughs> i got some of you. Uh, I'll have to say it. You don't have to say it. This, this is a big deal, especially in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, God's chosen people on the planet were the Jewish nation. That's who the Messiah would come through. That's who the Holy Scriptures, this book, would come through, the Jewish nation. And the sign that you were physically a Jew was circumcision. And that was so important to them, they almost linked it with salvation. If you're not circumcised, if you're not physically a Jew, you can't go to heaven. That's kind of a bummer for us, right? for those of you who are not jews or maybe those of you who are not jews that definitely don't want to get circumcised in your old age is this blessing then only for the circumcised paul saying like if the sign of this covenant is physical circumcision does that mean only jews can be saved or also for the uncircumcised that's all gentiles for we say that faith was counted to abraham as righteousness how then was it counted to him Was it before or after he had been circumcised? This was a very important question for Paul to answer. He says, It was not after but before he was circumcised, saying that he was right with God 100% by pure faith, not even the sign of the covenant contributed to it. Verse 11 He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith, that's us that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Here's the big idea that actually applies maybe to you more than you know. Abraham was justified by faith. The sign of the covenant did not even contribute. He was justified, and then that came. And this is why this matters to us in 2021 in West Texas. Because in the New Testament, there's this new covenant that we have been given through the the body and the blood and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that has been sealed by the blood of Christ, that has been given to us by the Holy Spirit, and has been sealed. The sign of the new covenant is no longer circumcision. Amen? It's baptism. It's baptism. The new covenant, you are baptized. That's the sign that you are, in fact, already justified by faith. Does baptism contribute to salvation? The answer is no. It comes after. You're only saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ. And then he continues in verse 13, talking more about faith. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring... That's, that's the gospel, the promise that he will bless uh, through this seed of Abraham, all nations. That he would be heir of the world, it did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, that meaning if you can be justified by works, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is saying that we can't use the law to make us innocent because the law exists to make us guilty. I don't know when this happened or why this happened, but my six-year-old began to read and just decides to read the speed limit every time we drive by. What is that, a constant reminder of my innocence? No. Dad, speed limit 45. Dang it. Like the law, he's saying like the law doesn't exist to make us righteous. The law shows us that we need Jesus. He's like, that's the point of the law. Don't use the law to try to point out that we're right before God. The law exists to show us that we are not right before God. We do, in fact, need Jesus. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not just the ones that are good, not just the ones that obey the law. Faith exists so that the gospel can be opened to everyone as wicked and sin, the most wicked and sinful person, even somebody like the Apostle Paul can be saved because it does not rest upon works but grace that is given through faith, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So he's the father of the Jews physically, but he's the father of Christians spiritually in a sense because he taught us what it truly means to be born again and to live through faith. Verse 17, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. I wish I had more time to tease this out because that is an unbelievable promise that God made an old man that he's going to bless every people group on the planet. And this shows up again that Abraham became the father, not just of the Jewish nations, but many nations, that today, this day, on this planet, thousands of people groups will gather in buildings, will gather under trees, will gather in shade, will gather, gather in sun, and they will celebrate and worship that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. It is the most diverse movement that planet Earth has ever seen. Hinduism is not that diverse. Big majority of them live in the same place in the Middle East. Uh, Hinduism is not that diverse. Mostly in uh, India, very very uh, monolithic, uh, diverse. Most of them live in Utah and have multiple kids. Like every other every other world religion is not. Even doesn't even come close to the diversity of Christianity. Why? Because God made a promise that he's going to bless every nation, and he is, in fact, pulling it off. And I think it's incredible. I think it's unbelievable that Jesus will not rest, Revelation 7 says this, until there is a representative from every single people group on the planet that bows their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. Thanks for letting me share that. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is Paul saying, why should you have faith in Jesus? Because he rose from the dead. That sets him apart from any other option of having faith. When I was at Amarillo College, we. Uh, would uh, take some pizza and there was a free speech area on campus that we could go and say uh, really whatever we wanted. And so that's where we would host some Bible studies. And I was uh, sharing with one of those one time. And uh, it was a very colorful area because a lot of people that hated Jesus and wanted to debate things would show up to those meetings because they were college students and there was free pizza. And I remember one day that this guy told me after I was just talking about Jesus and sharing that the Bible mentions that he's God, uh, this uh, very, very energetic uh, and and maybe self-centered 19-year-old said, well, I think we're kind of our own gods. I think I'm God. I said, okay, let's play this out a minute. You think you're God. Jesus thinks he's God. Which one should I believe? The one who rose from the dead and makes stuff out of nothing or the one who got C in chemistry? It's like, (laughs) I didn't tell him that. It's was like, in my brain, I was like, listen, if you can't even get an A in chemistry, I'm going with the guy who created the elements in the periodic table, right? That's what he's saying. you got all these guys, these gods lined up, offering you uh, wisdom, offering you a path in life, offering you a heaven. Go with the one who rose from the dead and create stuff ex nihilo out of nothing. Amen? That's what he's saying. Where am I at? Is anybody following along? Eighteen. In hope against hope, he believed that he should become the father of many nations, which meaning nothing made sense about this promise God gave Abraham, yet God, Abraham believed it anyway. That he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be, from Genesis. Verse 19, he, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. Maybe that's a verse that we need to take heart You know, if I consider my own body, my own frailty, that doesn't limit God in any way with his promises. He didn't weaken in faith when he thought about how old he was, which (laughs) says he was as good as dead. How many of you felt that way this morning? Since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, that was his wife who was a rich young age of 90. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced, highlight this in your Bible, verse 21, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. How many of you have ever wondered if Jesus can actually raise you from the dead? After you die, if Jesus can actually come back from heaven and defeat Satan's sin and the grave once and for all, if you doubt that, you don't have to understand how he's going to do it, but that he is going to do it. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he has promised. Maybe you struggle with believing that God can actually forgive you. You need to have faith in Jesus and believe that God can, in fact, do what he says he can do. And we have thousands of years of history that Jesus has proved that he's trustworthy. Abraham didn't have that much. He didn't even have the first few chapters of the Bible that we get to look at and experience. We have 4,000 years of history saying God does what He says He's going to do. If He says He's going to turn a, an old man and a barren woman into an entire nation, He's going to do it. If He says that He will bless those that bless you and curse those who curse you, He will. Do you know what the only nation from this time that still exists today the Jewish nation, Israel, it's still a nation. You can't go visit the Philistines. You can't go visit the Hittites and the Parasites and the Amorites and all the other ites. All the other hundreds of people groups that existed at the same time have been dead and gone for millennium. One still exists. Why? Because God made them a promise. And God keeps His promises. So this last portion he's going to talk about then and he's going to really zero in on what does it mean then to be justified or to what what precisely are humans or sinners invited to put their faith in to be saved. And I need you to let me be really honest to tease this out. Okay, can we agree on that? Can you all let me be honest for a moment? Because this is very important in a place like West Texas that has a lot of gospel influence, praise God, and a lot of uh, the morality of the Bible, praise God for all that. But it can be very, very uh, da- a dangerous place for your soul to think that you're justified when you're actually not. And so he's, it's not enough to believe in God. Faith just in God is not saving faith. Uh, Believing that God is good and kind, that's not enough. Trying to live a good life, which is the essence of West Texans. It's not enough to believe there is a God, to believe He's good, and to try to not be a horrible person and to do the best that you can. It's not enough to believe that you're imperfect it's not enough to say that I was baptized when I was a kid. I walked down an aisle and I baptized. It's different. And he's saying, this is what he said, circumcision and responding to the gospel are different. You can be baptized and not be a Christian. It happens all the time. If there was no faith in God, it was not a sign of the covenant. It was a strange bath that you took in public with your clothes on, right? Like, it, like, it's just not enough. So the question is, are you justified by God? If any of those are your answer, then you're not right with God. You're not justified. And, and so this is what he says. It's not just a historical faith that there is a God or even a historical faith in Jesus. It is a personal faith In Jesus as Lord and Savior, this is how he puts it, verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, which we read already in Romans 4, we read already from Genesis 12, Genesis 15. This is Paul saying the reason we have Genesis and the story of Abraham today, it's, it's for us. He says, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, not just so Abraham would know he was right with God, Verse twenty four he says, but for ours also. The story of Abraham is for West Texans. That's what he's saying. It was written for us. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from who raised from the dead, Jesus whose Lord, our Lord. Who was delivered up, not just delivered up for sins, Paul says, delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. This is what he's saying. It's not enough to believe in a historical Jesus. You need to believe in a personal Jesus that died in your place for your sins and rose from the grave to justify you by grace through faith in Christ. That's the question. It's not, are you a decent person? It's not, have you committed any horrible sins? It's not, have you been baptized? It's, have you personally trusted that Jesus died for you? Insert name here. Jesus rose to forgive you? Insert name here. That is saving faith. Those people are justified. Complete, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is put into their account. That's the story of Abraham. I get all this to my last point, which is just basically that we all need Jesus. If you're not a Christian, what is the, the takeaway for the story of Abraham? To put your faith in Jesus Christ the Lord, to be saved. And if you are a Christian, it is a reminder, a constant reminder, that we have been saved. We are justified. We are righteous. And here's the problem. Many of you don't feel righteous. True story? Many of you, maybe you struggle with this, you know that the Bible keeps saying you're righteous, but you sure don't feel righteous. You get all these conflicting feelings and thoughts and voices in your head, or maybe voices from other people saying, well, what about what you did, and what about what you struggle with, and what about uh, where you went, and what about all these sins where you just can walk away thinking, I just don't feel righteous. And it's, it's always truth before emotion, truth before feelings. That at the end of the day, it doesn't matter nearly as much how you feel as what he says. And if he says you're righteous, what are you? Righteous. Preach the gospel to yourself. You're not unrighteous. We're righteous not because of our deeds, but because of Jesus' deeds. When God looks at Christians, he sees the righteousness of Christ. It's like us showing up to the counter. He's like, uh, only the righteous get in. You're like, my account's full. Jesus put it in there. It's not my righteousness, it's his, but it's in my account, so I get in. That's the point of the gospel. Let me read to you Revelation chapter 12, and I think I'm behind, so I'll go quickly. Revelation chapter 12, so this is the last book of the Bible. We fast forward, this is uh, a, a futuristic thing. This is a picture of something that has not happened yet but will. It's a cosmic war in heaven. Cosmic war in heaven between Jesus and Satan, and Christians are caught kind of in the middle, really walking into the presence of God as righteous before God, going into heaven, and Satan, as the great accuser, is standing there before he's thrown down forever. And it says this, uh, Revelation chapter twelve verse seven. It's on the screen now. War arose in heaven. Michael, who was an angel, and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven, praise God. And the great dragon, that Satan, was thrown down, that ancient serpent who showed up in Genesis, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I, this is the Apostle John who wrote Revelation, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now... Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brothers. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but Satan is often called the accuser of the brethren. Why? Because he accuses Christians, because he says, You're not righteous you know what you did, you know what you watched, you know what you saw, you know where you've been, you know what you believe. He just accuses, you're not righteous, you don't deserve to stand before God. And he shows up with this last ditch effort to accuse the brethren. He says, For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Some of you have felt this. Like you read the Bible and it says that if you have faith, you're righteous. And then you've got all these other voices, both day and night, accusing that you that you are not. I love this verse. It says that the accuser accused them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him. By what? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. What was the blood of the Lamb? Jesus died in my place for my sins. What's the word of their testimony? I have no righteousness of my own. I'm with him. I have his righteousness. When Satan accuses you what you've done, you say it doesn't matter. What Jesus has done is what matters. I'm covered. I'm clean. I'm righteous. I'm holy. Not because of who I am, but because of who he is. That's how we'll conquer that day. And honestly, that's how you will conquer this day. That's how you live in true Christian freedom. See, trying to, trying to earn God's favor through justification by works is a horrible way to live. Trying to be, be, be terrified of, that you might mess up and bearing the weight of guilt and shame and fear and despair and condemnation. And the gospel releases for us from all of that because we are invited to respond through faith. That we believe Jesus lived the life that we cannot live. Jesus died a death that truly we deserve to die. And so when you have faith in Jesus, he puts his righteousness into your account and you are saved and we preach the gospel to ourselves every day that I know that I'm saved by and I will conquer through the blood of the lamb and the word of my testimony. And the word of my testimony is the blood of the lamb. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you're not a Christian, you need to throw yourself on the mercy and the grace of jesus to be justified and made right and that's the starting line your life will never be the same but all the change takes place after faith faith is the starting point believe believe that god does what he says he can do he is who he says he is put your faith in jesus to be saved for you christians in the room be reminded that you're righteous not because of your own works but because of jesus christ let's pray jesus we love you We need you. We praise you. We thank you. God, I pray that you would just expand our imaginations and our mind and our hearts to comprehend what it is that you've actually accomplished. God, that humans and and evil spirits and Satan himself have been trying to derail your promises throughout all of history. And all of their plans have come to nothing because you keep your promises Even when Jesus was born, when they tried to kill all the babies to put an end to this this promised Messiah, Jesus, you, you were born. And you were born, you came, you lived a perfect life, you died our death in our place for our sins, you rose for our justification. Father, I pray that we would worship you, that we would live in true gospel freedom as sons and daughters that have been adopted and have been changed by grace through faith so that all of us We'll sing and we'll shout and we'll proclaim that it's the glory of Jesus that we stand. And I pray that you would truly move in hearts this morning. Help us to respond to the gospel of Jesus. We love you and I pray that you are worshipped in these next few moments. God, I pray that no one would leave this room after this sermon. I pray that everyone would stay and would sing and would listen. God, I would just, with a whole army of Christians, just declare that we're righteous because of Christ. We love you, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. We would love for you to join us at one of our in-person services as well. For more information or to support our ministry, please visit RedeemerMidland.org.